Fake social media personas are a real problem for sports journalism. Plus, amateurism may truly be over for college sports. A group trying to block the Oakland A's from receiving funding from Nevada is making its next move. And we'll hear from an executive working to grow a women's ultimate Frisbee league. It's Monday, February 26th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Insider reporters can build up a huge social media following by delivering major scoops, but as their stature grows, so does the incentive to impersonate them online. Joining me now to discuss is Front Office Sports senior reporter AJ Perez. Welcome, AJ. Thanks for having me on. So you, you've been looking at this for a story on frontofficesports.com. Um, there are a couple categories of this. Let's start with the, what I think of as the bigger one, which is people who are you know make a, an account on X, formerly Twitter. Uh, to say I'm Adam Schefter, I'm Jeff Passan, I'm you know some big reporter who we rely on for scoops, and then delivers a fake scoop. So how big an issue is this for the you know the Passans, the Schefters, the Woges of the world? It's a big problem for them, and I I, I talked to a few talked to a few of the insiders uh, um, who are who 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 are impacted. They uh, you know anonymously they don't want to. It's kind of hard for them to put their names on this stuff since it, it makes them probably more of a target. Uh, you know they're. They're used to, to the to some accounts, the big aggregator accounts, which we which we reported on previously, taking what they report and kind of putting a slant to it, or report or putting out on 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 X, formerly Twitter, uh, you know, something that they did not report. They're used to that now. Since Elon dismantled over the last uh, year plus, dismantled the verification program. Now there's a rise of uh, fake fake beat reporters, uh, them impersonating the Schefter's, the Voges of the world, uh, using their photos and, and even having verification. If you pay, you know, if you pay the monthly fee, you can have a little blue check mark that used to be identify you as someone who has a stature or, or is a trusted source. That's all gone away. So now you have all these uh, blue checks that are um, impersonating both uh, actual reporters and then they're totally making up their own. Right. So the blue check used to be the safety guard, essentially, against this sort of thing where, yeah, if you see, yeah, um, Schefter, but there's no blue check, then, you know, the savvy Twitter user will know that that's not the real guy. Uh, but now you pay your eight bucks a month or whatever it is, and then uh, you've got your blue check to go along with the picture. And, you know, you can make a subtle a username that has subtle differences that you wouldn't pick up if you're not looking closely. What's in it for the impersonators doing this? Uh, for some, it's the ones who are paying. You know, they're who are paying for that blue check. They get the monetization. They get they get they get money back from 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 X uh, the, for for their engagement. And the more wild, the more out there. Um, as long as it doesn't get a community note, and the community note is a correction that the that Twitter sorry X users um, will 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 add to a post to say, hey, this isn't real. Then that post loses. Uh, any ability to make money for that person who made that post, but a lot of them don't get don't get community notes. Like we wrote about one where it's been a couple months now. The one of the more you know, it was a more it was a not as harmful as what happened with Shafter before Christmas. Um, but it was it's also it's also fake and wrong, and it's been it's been passed around, and it'll and a lot of these have ended up on um, mainstream news outlets as being an official source. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, and so some people are maybe just goofing around, but now, you know, with the excess monetization program, you can make some some quick money um, doing this kind of thing. So that's fascinating. Yeah, and they're, and, and they're doing it in a lot of different ways. They AI, AI generated photos. Um, the, a lot of these profiles who say they work at ESPN or Fox or other major outlets, you know, they're using AI generated photos. You don't know who they are. You know, but they have that blue check. Uh, they sound official. Some sometimes their follower accounts are up high enough where you wouldn't question uh, if someone was real or not. Uh, it, there's uh, there's a lot of different and a lot of it. A lot of it is yes, it's kind of oh, we tricked them, ha ha ha. We got someone to run our stuff, and um, you know, there's but there's there's there it as uh, you know as as I mentioned with Adam Schefter, someone picking being him before Christmas. Said something, said something totally salacious about uh, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, Dave Tepper, and it was totally false. And um, it could have, you know, it was pretty, it was a pretty harmful post. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so there's another category to this, which are not people not saying I'm Adam Schefter, but just saying I'm an ESPN reporter. I'm a New York Times reporter. And then using that fake stature to break some fake news. Exactly. And that does, when they do it like that, that does, uh, that does violate X's policy for, for impersonation. Um, but, uh, there's not a lot of enforcement out there right now. And so these accounts have sprung up every, there's so many of them. Um, you know, I, I found 30 of, uh, of, you know, using either other people's photos who are not journalists or AI generated photos, uh, to actually, you know, put out this fake news using that blue check mark. And, uh, and it, it, it makes the rounds. It's harder for news people who consume news, especially on X and other social platforms to tell what is real and what's not because the verification program is basically gone. Um, and, uh, and what's left is, uh, our, our, our people, you know, are, is this person real? Is it sounds real? It looks real. He has the photo. He, she has the photo. Um, it looks, this, this should be legit. Uh, but a lot of the times it's not. And, um, there's really, it's up to it's up to us as users of these platforms to you know be wary when really it shouldn't have been up to us. The, the program, you know, it wasn't perfect. The verification program, which actually arose out of a Tony Larusa lawsuit back when he was a White Sox manager, the at Tony Larusa account back in two thousand nine, you know, was you know references you know drug driving arrest from a couple of years prior, and it was just such a wild thing. It did say. It did say parody, which is one of the ways to do it. But you're impersonating, you know, you, when you have the at at Tony Larusa, and when you have a photo of Tony Larusa, you know, I think that was the start, and that's when you know, even even though that that lawsuit went away pretty quickly, it did spark within pretty much a day after it got to federal court. Twitter, I'm oh, sorry, back when it was Twitter, announced the first verification program, um, and uh, and it, it, it there were and it it grew from there until Elon Musk bought the company. And uh, yeah, is there anything other than X doing what it ought to have been doing this whole time and actually uh, strengthening its verification program? Um, is there anything that can, can be done other than just be careful if something sounds a little bit off? I hope stories like mine do kind of spur some change there. There hasn't been a lot of, you know, there's a, there's there's issues with X, you know, with the bots that that have that that research has shown have, is more prevalent now. You've seen it, I've seen it. Whenever we post one of our stories or anything, we'll get a bot response, multiple bot responses, and so there's there's a lot of things that that have 
you know, tw- Twitter and X was never, it was never the most hospitable place, especially for, uh, for, for, for many groups and many people. But now it's just kind of, it's become less of a reliable news source. And that's kind of a sad thing because that's a lot of, that's what a lot of us use uh, Twitter and now X for. And it's, uh, and this is uh, one of the reasons that it's less useful these days. Yeah. And weren't bots like one of the reason Elon Musk said, I- I've got to buy this thing to, to clear up the bots. And like, that's like what the $8 a month thing was supposed to help get rid of is, you know, you, the bots aren't going to pay. And except now, yeah, I get like offered a different crypto coin basically every day um through through that oh yeah um, yeah the 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 crypto bots are yeah and now sports betting bots are kind of on oh, the rise yeah. as well now all right well yeah funny times out there aj perez thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me if you thought nil payments to college athletes were getting crazy well what we've seen so far was just the prologue On Friday, a federal judge blocked the NCAA from enforcing rules that stop schools from simply offering athletes NIL deals as an inducement to come to that school. In other words, until there is a further ruling in this case, schools can effectively sign recruits using offers routed through NIL collectives. This is pay for play. The case was brought by the attorneys general of Tennessee and Virginia, but the ruling applies nationwide. This is not the final say in the case. It's an injunction against the NCAA that will be in place until a final decision is made. There are a lot of legal machinations that still need to happen here, but amateurism in college sports may effectively be over. We'll see what this means in real terms when the next transfer portal window opens between April 15th and April 30th. We finally have a thaw in the strange holdup in MLB free agency. Going into this offseason, the top of the free agent class consisted of two Japanese superstars and four Scott Boris clients. Shohei Otani and Yoshinobu Yamamoto went to the Dodgers for a combined $1 billion and $25 million, which meant the remaining stars were the Boris Four, former MVP Cody Bellinger, reigning NL Cy Young winner Blake Snell, third baseman Matt Chapman, and pitcher Jordan Montgomery. Boris changed the game over the last two decades by holding out for the best deal for his clients and often coming away with contracts that far exceeded expectations. But this offseason has left people questioning his methods, because none of those four, or a fifth Boris client's aging slugger J.D. Martinez, had a job at the start of spring training. But now one of them has come off the board. Bellinger is returning to the Chicago Cubs on a three-year, $80 million deal with opt-outs after each season. Meanwhile, Warriors coach Steve Kerr got a smaller but more historic deal. He signed a two-year, $35 million contract that makes him the highest-paid coach in NBA history, though it depends a little on higher counting. The Spurs' Greg Popovich actually makes more, but he is also the team president, and the Miami Heat's Eric Spolstra still has the highest contract total after he signed an eight-year extension worth around $120 million. On Saturday, I attended the Oakland A's Fan Fest, which was different from other teams' fan fests in a few ways, but one of them is that it was not put on by the team itself. There were representatives from the Stockton Ports, which are the A's single-A affiliate, and the Oakland Ballers, who are a Pioneer League team beginning play in May, two soccer teams, two Frisbee teams, plenty of retired A's players, just not the team at the center of all of this. Another group attending was the Nevada State Education Association, the group backed by teachers' unions, looking to block the $380 million the state is providing to the A's to build a new stadium. I spoke with Chris Daly, Deputy Executive Director of Government Relations with the NSEA, which is suing Nevada on the grounds that the bill that authorized the funding is unconstitutional. On that front, he had some news. When um, it looks like there may be action coming at the stadium authority, uh, we will likely at that point file our motion for an injunction, for injunctive relief. 
So they are filing an injunction seeking to stop anything related with the law that authorizes the funding from moving forward until a ruling is reached. Daly also works with schools over stadiums, which is organizing a ballot referendum against the funding. Up next, I spoke to Lily Ponitz at the Premier Ultimate League. The PUL is an ultimate league for women and gender expansive people. It is five years old and working to grow in every facet from teams to players to spectators. We spoke about all that and plenty more and that conversation is coming up next. I'm joined now by Lily Ponitz, General Manager for the Atlanta Soul in the Premier Ultimate League and also the league's board treasurer. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on. So uh, we're five years into the existence of the Premier Ultimate League, still very young, but maybe past the stages of just getting it off the ground. Obviously, the pandemic was in the middle of that, so maybe there's still some getting off the ground that's happening. But what is the league established in these first few years? Yeah, so we started off in 2019 with eight teams um, and have grown into an 11-team league now in 2024. And we play um, an exciting season, April through June, leading into a championship weekend in late June. And all of our teams are based in the eastern and central time zones. Um, The furthest west team is in Austin, Texas. And... Because of that, we're able to play um, single games. So we travel uh, for three home games, three away games every year. Um, Every team is able to um, play that six-game schedule. And we're able to, you know, do all of that without condensing the schedule or having to play in a single location like some leagues do in the early years. Um, which is really fun because we get to really grow our fan bases in each of those cities. And that's one of the best parts of the league so far is that we've really seen um, the the fans and the support for the PUL um, come out year after year and grow every year since 2019. Yeah, and talk to me about that sort of local support you're seeing these fans. How, do these, how are these teams reaching out to fans and yeah, how are fans finding the league? A lot of our teams are doing a ton of grassroots outreach. We invest a lot of time and money in our local communities. So um, these are players who are either playing in that city and sometimes traveling from hours outside of the home city um, to participate in this team. And we see by them getting involved in their local amateur teams, um, coaching youth teams, being involved with their college teams that they really draw um, fans who want to support them as individual players as they make the journey into professional ultimate. And then teams also at like sort of an organizational level will do some outreach. We run clinics in lots of cities. We do a lot of youth outreach um, to, to work on bringing those fans out. Uh, What sort of stuff are you doing in the Atlanta area with the soul? We have an exciting partnership with a high school where we host our home games, and we love to partner with them to um, bring their players out to our games. We also partner with the Atlanta Flying Disc Club, which is our local nonprofit to help out with clinics. Um, We give tickets to them to give out to youth players, to help encourage youth players to try out for elite teams, 
and um, we just host a lot of events. We just got done hosting um, or participating as a sponsor in a disc golf tournament um, to try and reach out to that disc community that's sort of adjacent to Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, uh, so the PUL is registered as a nonprofit. What does that mean in practical terms for how you operate? Yeah, because we're organized as a 501c6, we do a lot of our fundraising um, to try and support the teams that are part of the PUL. So we're a member organization. Um, we're really run by the 11 teams who are in the league, uh, which is great because we're kind of a player run organization, which is part of our value system. And um, it means that every year we're really focused on operations, um, the money that we bring in through um, fundraisers um, and sponsorships goes toward investing in our streaming capabilities, which really gets our games out there in front of fans. Um, we invested in having a great commissioner who does an awesome job running the league and providing a good quality experience for the players and coaches and organizers who participate in the league. And um, we invest, you know, our time, like I said, in local communities and in um, getting out there in front of people. And um, we're trying to serve as that resource for elite women's and gender expansive ultimate um, to really be a face of, a high level form of the sport. And um, on the streaming part of that, how does that operate? I know you can have anything these days from, you know, a full production company to basically a camera with its own software that tracks the game on its own. So where do you fall in that spectrum? I think we actually have some really high quality live streaming content that we put out. It depends team to team what they decide to do. But um, for example, Atlanta Soul, we do a three-camera live stream. So we have a, a wide-angle top camera capturing the whole field. We have a sideline camera getting closer up on plays. And then we have a gimbal camera that's out there on the field, getting on the field after scores, capturing celebrations, getting the really up-close, high-quality, um, kind of highlight reel stuff. And a lot of teams are putting out something of that quality and with um, live graphics, scoreboard on the screen, instant replay, it's um, commentators. It's a really good experience um, to view online. And how do you want to see the league grow, you know, in the next, say, five years? I think in terms of our growth, number one, we're looking to bring in more fans and more money into the PUL so that we can help our teams succeed and start to make it an, a better and better experience every year for everyone who's involved. And we're also looking at expanding teams next year and in future years. Um, there are just so many great ultimate cities, even just on the East Coast and in the Midwest, that we're excited to tap and start bringing into the fold of um, our league. I understand the Premier Ultimate League, you know, follows the tradition of being self-officiated. Um, is that true at every level of Ultimate? It's always something, you know, you watch any other sport, and you're like, well, if they're officiating themselves, like, 
they'd be just like calling lots of fouls on everyone else. And, you know, it's, there's certain obvious incentives in certain directions. Um, is that, yeah, does that exist throughout Ultimate? And is there a point when eventually you have to, to bring in referees? The self-officiated nature of Ultimate does exist, I would say, at almost all levels. Um, there are some exceptions. So in the Premier Ultimate League, we have observers who um, are similar to referees. It's sort of Ultimate's version of referees where they're going to make a couple active calls, for example, inbounds or out of bounds or um, in the end zone for a score, not in the end zone. Um, But it's still up to players to make foul calls, um, you know, travel calls, other other calls are completely self-officiated and the players are able to go to the observer if the players themselves are not able to reach a resolution on the call within a certain amount of time of discussion. And that's really the way that um, the PUL works. That's the way the WUL works. Um, any USA Ultimate um, tournaments are going to work that way. Um, the, na- the international body, WIFDF, ter- their tournaments work that way. Um, the UFA, the men's league does play with, with referees and, and penalties, um, you know, yardage penalties, things like that, which is a little bit different than, um, the origin of the sport and sort of the spirit that we're trying to stick to with the premier ultimate league rules. Gotcha. And your season starts in April. Where can folks find you? Yeah. The opening weekend is April 6th and 7th. Um, folks can find out more information at premier ultimate league dot com and they can find us on social media as well all right very cool holy ponets thanks so much for joining us thanks for having me that's it for today subscribe to front office sports today on apple podcasts or wherever you like to tune in thanks for listening we will see you tomorrow 